The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is an ex-army mechanic who is now working to provide a path to civilian life for other military veterans. Wayne Smith is developing a program called the Farmer's Army, where former defence personnel work in the rural sector utilising the unique skill set they develop in the armed forces. So I'm pleased to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Wayne Smith, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you for having me. Okay, you've got an army background. Tell us, where did all that come about? So basically, I joined the army not long after finishing high school. I finished school and then I was working full-time with my parents in the um, family workshop. And unfortunately, Dad and I didn't have the best relationship as far as we both wanted to do our own thing all the time. So we tended to butt heads quite a lot. Dad mostly won. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely some heated arguments. Uh, I recall sitting on top of a a beam when we were um, doing some work on the shed and having a pretty decent argument. But uh, yeah, anyway, I I saw an ad come up in the paper and it was basically the army advertising for mechanics and I thought, okay, well, this might be a good opportunity to get out of home for a little bit, try something different and then Ultimately, I would have liked to go Air Force and go for a pilot because uh, I've always had a fascination with aircraft and I actually got my recreational pilot's license uh, whilst I was still in high school. So I thought, okay, if I went to the Army, the mechanical side was a, a foot in the door where I had some sort of um, grounding that I could relate to and then I figured I'd just transfer through. So that was quite literally how it came about. So from the day I saw the paper, sent off the applications. Within a week or two, I was down in Brisbane going through all the interviews and the aptitude testing and psych testing. And then I think it was about, I think it was within a month, I was on a bus, on a plane, and then on the bus down to Wagga Wagga. So that's how it started. (laughs) Must have been pretty exciting when you're on the bus, you're heading down for Wagga and you're, you're thinking, what have I done? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was a bit surreal. Um, thinking back on it now, it was. I think the biggest shock to the system was coming from, because uh, I enlisted in the middle of winter. My enlistment date, I think, was actually the sixth of the sixth of the sixth. <laughs> uh, so I remember well, we got on the the plane at Brisbane, and it was like a, a normal Brisbane winter's day, twenty six degrees, t shirt, and didn't really think too much of it. And then got out at Sydney and it was like, okay, it's a little bit fresh here. And then we got on the bus at Sydney and then got down to Wagga and that was like a six hour drive or something. So we got to Wagga at 11 o'clock at night. And I know they stage us all, looking back on it, it was all part of the process. Because <laughs> you're, you're fatigued, you're cold, you're confused, it's dark, everything's disorientating. And then when you're on the bus, it's still pretty casual, you know, You, it's still civilian. And then the moment the bus rocks up at uh, Kapuka, 
you get a sergeant coming on the bus and he's yelling and swearing and carrying on, telling you to get off the bus, hurry up, get your shit together. Um, you know, it's just a... Your typical your, sergeant major and yeah, that you see in the movies. Yeah. So it was really you didn't have time to process the the way that it was all happening. And they obviously structure it that way because that gives the maximum impact. And it was actually something I got more experience with later on. I started doing youth boot camp courses, um, but that's for another another time. <laughs> so the as far as daunting, no, it was just a, a very confusing aspect because of the the way that they go through the induction. Um, the the cold was probably a big shock for me because I don't do cold at the best of times. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we get led around to get some basic stuff, like we got our PT gear, because the next morning you're up bright and early to do a PT test. So you had you actually where you're fully over the line. You you've, you're in. Are you theirs at that stage? No. So if you fail that next morning, they basically send you on the bus and send you home. So it's you're just in this state of awe. And I was actually borderline underweight to, to get in. So my fitness wasn't the best going into it. I wasn't overweight. I just didn't have the, the stamina and I, did, I was always really lean. So I actually struggled because of that. Um, and then throw in being, I think the first morning it was negative four degrees. And oh. yeah, so, <laughs> and you're literally just wearing, a, a, it's just a t-shirt, your, your training shorts, sneakers. It's yeah, a brutal shock to the system. Run hard, keep warm. Pretty much. And then <laughs> at that point, your core is the only thing that's warm, that you got ice forming on the back of your shoes as you're running around on the oval and you can't feel anything other than just your core everything else is just numb so welcome to Wagga pretty much yeah so that was a challenging experience in that respect (laughs) so then you got out on the job what are you experiencing there so I did my three months at Wagga and then I went to uh, Aubrey Wodonga to Latchford Barracks and started my formal trade training so I went in as a, a vehicle mechanic and the way that the military does their trade training is virtually you still have a formal AUR um, so civilian recognized trade which comes under the um, your competencies for the AUR system but you do virtually all of your theory first and then they send you out and rotate you around different units to get the practical experience towards the end of your apprenticeship time. So basically the first 18 months, two years is all theory-based. You're going through working on training aids and you know the occasional um, job that rolls through, but it's you have a workbook, you're going through all the theory and then you're applying it on the training aid and that's all getting ticked off as you go through the progressions on each competency. The thing that kind of frustrated me about it was because I was young and I'll be honest, a lot of it was being naive and uh, not very worldly at the time (laughs) (laughs) and a bit gung-ho, but because I'd grown up in a mechanical and engineering workshop where to me, I didn't actually realise the difference between the engineering side of things and the mechanical side of things. So to me, it was all one and the same. And then coming into the army to do just my diesel mechanic, 
I found my skill sets to be very narrowed down. And then there wasn't any formal recognition of the skills that I developed growing up. So I had to go through all of the basic stuff again. And I guess it was mainly because I was young and um, didn't really feel that I was being valued to where I felt I should have been. So I was already on the back foot feeling a bit disgruntled because I was having to do all this basic stuff that I already knew and had already done a thousand times before. Frustrating. Very frustrating. And I would kind of get given a task and just do it, but then I'd get in trouble because I didn't get to this certain point and then get a sign-off done on it and then get to the next point and get a sign-off done on it. It was like, okay, this gearbox needs to be stripped down. Okay, there it is stripped down. Oh, well, you were supposed to stop here, here, and here. So we try to understand when you're getting somebody that's completely green and, and working through, I can understand that. But obviously at the time being young and um, yeah, it, it didn't sit well with me. Is that just the army way though? It is. Uh, it's, it has to be done in a system because obviously if you take it out into a, a combat environment, which is also what they're training for, you're still having to be a soldier first and when it comes to working on these machinery, there has to be sequences in place that become second nature. So if you're working in a, a constraint environment or you're working in low light conditions or things like that, I fully understand the necessity for systematic processes in that field. The problem with that is when you get out of the forces and you're working in a civilian environment, the dynamics of your workplace are different. You're working on a variety of machinery in order to replace a starter motor, what you did this way in the army might be different for every other vehicle that you ever work on. So it can be very, whilst it works in that um, environment, it can become very restrictive outside of it, is my experience with it. So I suppose they've got all of the vehicles are the same so they can do it the same way. Yeah, yeah. So you've got their set fleet and the other thing about it was it's still very much a game of chance as to where you end up getting posted, which then determines what sort of vehicles you're working on. So, okay, yep, yep. So you go through and you do your basic mechanical course and then you might end up getting posted to, say, Darwin, where they have the um, cavalry unit. So you get posted up there and then they'll send you back to do specialised training for those specific pieces of equipment then you go up and you do your two or three years there and then they might post you to a um, transport unit so then you're back to working on your basic mogs rovers and, and that sort of stuff and because my background was agricultural and forestry and heavy earth moving sort of equipment growing up in the workshop with dad I wanted to be working on that stuff so I kind of weighed it up and went my chances of actually working on what I want to be working on to get advanced skill sets are probably not as high as I'd like them to be. So looking at the game of chance, looking at the fact that I wasn't able to do all of the the engineering side of things that I'd grown up doing, I was yeah feeling really, really restricted with where I could actually go within my military career. Could you have done it if you had moved across to the Air Force? It's hard to say. Uh, I think one of the, another thing that frustrated me was 
when I started my mechanical training at Latchford, they actually had Air Force guys doing the exact same mechanical course. So I was kind of at that point where I didn't want to consider any other alternatives at that point because as far as I was concerned, recruiting had lied to me about you know the way the progression was going to work and I kind of took myself out of it. But looking back at it now and talking to guys that stayed in and looking at where they've gone with their careers, it probably would have been a bit different because also the Air Force doesn't have the same uh, physical demands as the Army. So they don't have as much of the soldier style training to the same degree. And because I was always on the back foot fitness wise at that point, I struggled to to keep up. It was, uh, the fitness side wasn't enjoyable for me at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> it actually wasn't until after I got out of the forces that I was able to kind of catch up and then get to a point where fitness became a, a passion for me. Did you enjoy the soldiering part of it? I did. Um, I would have enjoyed it more had it not been the middle of winter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we did a field exercise towards the end of basic training where we spend a week out in the, I think it's Buckenbong State Forest or something like that. And we had a night there, it was something like negative eight degrees. <coughs> you're on picket, so basically the, the guns, you, you dig in your perimeter, so you're simulating a, a combat environment. So you dig in your perimeter and then you've got your machine guns set up on the outskirts to obviously keep a 24 hour watch. So you're on picket for rotation as to who's manning the gun throughout the night. And I remember being on picket at like two o'clock in the morning, it was raining and I'm sitting there with every item of clothing on, <laughs> drenched and freezing, watching puddles freeze over in front of me and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not so keen on this anymore. Um, I can't understand why. <laughs> <laughs> so that side of it sucked. The the extreme weather conditions. However, the actual, I really enjoyed the shooting side of it. I really enjoyed the the tactics and the the theory behind it and all of the the strategy and, and that side of it I really gravitated towards. And I actually really enjoyed drill as well. So the, something about the taking pride in your presentation of it and all that sort of stuff. So had I stuck with it and got through that uh, young stubbornness there probably would have been certain things within the career that I would have enjoyed a lot more but um, in saying that had I not gone through the things that I've gone through I wouldn't be where I am today to to be able to do the things that I'm looking to do so 2020 hindsight exactly <laughs> but the army um, must have given you a fair bit though because it got you out, got you to see the world, got you to experience a whole bunch of other things. How did you change from the Army experience? Definitely uh, definitely a world of good came from it. The Probably the biggest thing was my own self-confidence. The Combined with the fitness side of things, as I got towards the end of the two years, I was sort of starting to get to that point where I could 
definitely see the changes in where I was at from a, a physical point of view. That'd and be part of growth anyway, just as I say, when you got in, you were younger and suddenly you're maturing and exactly. filling out. So I think it would have been a, a rite of passage anyway. Exactly. So, I mean, I had my 18th birthday at basic training. Um, that was the best experience ever. So towards the end of that, there was the confidence and then you kind of develop a, it's a certain arrogance, I suppose, that comes with it because you, you kind of feel that in some ways you're a little bit better than those that aren't in the military or who haven't experienced it because there is certain hardships and certain things that you experience, even just in the basic training and general military things, let alone the guys that go overseas and, and see combat and, and active duty. There is a kind of like a brotherhood that forms as a result of it because that's something that only those that have been through it can understand it. And when you then apply that and you start dealing with things in civilian worlds, you're kind of looking at things in a different light going, okay, well, that's really not something worth stressing about. And you manage your your rationalities a lot better, I think, because you can gauge it on a, on a scale that's based on self-preservation. So... You were a mechanic and you also, as you say, did soldiering in the army. Do you wish you'd seen combat just to give you that uh, experience? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Uh, at different times, I've been through some pretty significant highs and lows in my life. And during those times, I reflect back on it. And I remember having a, a pretty low period when I was living in Brisbane. And the I was actually at the point of quite seriously considering joining the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> um, Why? Because it was an escape. It was like a complete fresh start. It was... Because when you go into that realm, your entire history becomes null and void. Did you do any research before you started? Did yeah. you seriously look at it? Yeah. Yeah, I seriously looked at it. I watched quite a few documentaries on it. I um, started doing digging around and finding uh, like biographies on people that had kind of been through it. And whilst I didn't go into them in full depth, I kind of started to get an idea on it and the different videos just online and that sort of stuff. But the end result was basically you could sign up you were guaranteed to see action and at the end of the six years <laughs> you could basically go back to your old life or you could start a complete new life um with a pocket full of cash basically so there was that side of it and then as i kind of went through different stages where i had varying degrees of dislike for society the thing that i liked about the military and and that was when you're in a combat environment, nothing else matters. It's literally life and death. So whilst it's so crazy and so hectic, my vision of it is that it's also kind of surreal because it doesn't matter whether you paid your phone bill or not. It doesn't matter whether somebody's frustrated with you because you told them off at the bar. You know, it's it's quite literally you're either living or you're dying and that's the extent of your existence at that point in time. And I think something about that simplistic rawness really gravitates to me. And it also, I suppose, play into that camaraderie that you're talking about. Yeah, you, you develop a, a certain sense of, um, 
type of people that you want to associate with as well. So whilst you may not necessarily have a lot of conversation, you have a connection that doesn't need explanation. You just, you can kind of, you just click with those guys in a way that not many people would really be able to relate to. It's How do you relate to these guys these days that have stayed in the army and are career soldiers or career mechanics in the in the forces? I think I was in long enough to get an idea on what it was like, but not long enough to be damaged by it. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'm finding that whilst the guys are still in, and I still got a couple of mates that I, I talk to every now and then, and whilst they were in that environment, everything was good for them and whatever else. But I noticed when they got out, there was a real shortfall for them in a, a struggling period to kind of adapt to life outside. So I took a long time to even really consider myself as a veteran in the fact that because I didn't do my full return, um, full service and things like that, but I feel that I can, whilst I can't relate on a full scale with them, I can relate better than a lot of civilians can. So I can kind of create a, a transition or a bridging um, connection for them where I can talk them through something that can relate it back to something they understand in the military and cross over to a civilian concept per se. So the you do have a, a mix of guys that have been in different experiences and some of them there'll always be a resentment you know you didn't do your full time you're not a veteran this and that everyone's got their own views on it and I fully respect that because I know I can't relate to the guys that went overseas I know I've got no way of understanding what they actually went through but I know that they're going to struggle coming out of it so if I can provide anything to assist them then that's kind of where I see myself. Why do they struggle when they get out and come back to that civilian life? Because at the end of the day, I don't think society in general understands what they go through. So, you know, you can have somebody that's gone overseas, been in active combat, you know, may have ended up killing someone or seen, you know... Um, their teammate like their mates getting killed and then a month later they're back home and expected to be normal it's and then you consider the environments that they're in so they're working in afghan they're working in iraq and timor and all different places where the combat environment is a civilian environment they're working in populated cities they're working with high-rises they're working with market stalls and all of these things that we consider as normal day-to-day -day things yet they're on edge 24-7 in that environment looking for somebody that's out of place on their mobile phone. They're looking for some shadow in a, a window and then they come back home and they're expected to just switch off to that. Can they? Is that possible? Because as you know, John Schumann quite succinctly put it in his I was only 19 that, you know, the Channel 7 chopper chills me to my feet. Yeah, it, it's not having not experienced it firsthand, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I feel that it's not something you can switch off. Like I can talk about my own hardships in whether it's business or relationships or, you know, 
particular events and you still relate back to them when you get a trigger. So I can only imagine what it's like for somebody that's, you know, had an IED going off beside them because of somebody on a phone and then they're expected to walk down Queen Street Mall. You can only imagine the anxiety when then they're feeling even more exposed because they don't have their armour, they don't have their weapon, they don't have their team, they don't have their communications, they don't have that entire network that they're used to having. So of course there's going to be a degree of um, stress that comes as a result of it. What percentage would you say of guys that get out of the forces army, uh, as we're talking about, do suffer from this PTSD that you think that you that you're talking about? I haven't looked at the figures to give any accurate quotes per se, but based on just my own views of it and talking to different guys that I have, I honestly think every soldier suffers with it to some extent or another, whether it's you know a very mild something that happened in basic training. It's something that just sits there and, and comes back to them. Or you know it may not have been active combat they might have been in and they witnessed a car accident or something that's happened there's still a stress factor associated with service and that's ultimately what it's about though because you have to be able to function under stress so that's what they train you for but when you have the other support networks it's kind of a managed stress when you get out of the forces you don't have that support network so the other thing that I see is particularly for the younger veterans, like the guys my age and a little bit older, but basically anyone that served from after Vietnam, there's not a lot of social recognition, I feel, for those guys because you can see them walking down the street and you wouldn't have a clue that they were a veteran. You wouldn't have a clue what they've been through. Should there be that? Should there be the recognition or should we be getting them back into normality because well it's a new it's a new type of normal but you know I think do they be... need a hat do they need a badge you know like how should they get that recognition if I think it's more need? about educating society on the necessity of having these guys and not so much giving them a formal recognition in the sense of like what you see over in America where they have you know baseball games and you know all your veterans stand up and that sort of stuff I think it's more about these guys, again, everyone's different. And I think a lot of them want just a quiet recognition to be able to live life their own way. Because when you go through those experiences, I know even for myself and my limited experience with it, I don't really want a lot to do with society because I don't agree with what people get worked up over. So I just want to be able to go out, kind of do my own thing, be more or less on my own and just sort of be on the fringes more so. Is and that typical, you find, of uh, ex-service personnel? I think so um, because they they respect the fact that people want to live in this social bubble and they you know, want people to have the freedom to do that. But as a respect to them, they want to be able to have the freedom to do what they want to do. And I think that's the biggest part about it is society is so much about being part of it. So to be able to have your soldiers and the people that are sitting on the fringes, they need to be accepted for being able to do that. And at the moment, there's 
not a lot of understanding on that mindset, I don't think. So they're not properly repatriated? I don't think so, no. Uh, so you're working to do something about that. What are you doing? So I'm in the early stages of developing a program with, um, it's a quite a large project in the grand scheme of things, but at the moment I'm focusing on veterans and farmers. So the idea is basically along the lines of getting these veterans who have come back, whether they've done active service or whatever it might be, but the ones that are kind of struggling, giving them an opportunity to get onto properties working with farmers and giving them a sense of purpose again, because the a lot of them you come back, if you've been in a combat skill set or trained in a combat skill set, that doesn't have a lot of call for outside of a combat zone. So, but say engineers and things like that, they know how to do fencing, they know how to do um, general tasks to get things functioning. So you can get a group of guys that can work together as a unit on a property to provide a labor force. So they're assisting the farmer with general property tasks, whatever it might be within their skill set capabilities. But then the other focal point is actually on feral animal control. So you can then let these guys use their combat skills in a constructive way where they're actually refocusing on the enemy being the feral animals and they can do all of the reconnaissance, all of the planning, all of the logistics, all of the stuff that they know and gravitate towards in a situation where they can be valued for that skill set. So they then feeling appreciated, they're then feeling that they've got a purpose for what they're doing and it gets them away from those social pressures because you can get them out onto remote properties, whether they want to be involved in that, or even it's just creating a connection where they can then have somewhere where they can just get away for a while, do some camping and not have to go to Double Island where you've got more people camping with you than you did living in the city. So it's just creating that opportunity for connection. That's the ultimate goal there. With the overall underlying component to it is the mental health for these guys for both the farmers and the veterans because there's a certain similarity in the fact that they both go through struggles and hardships so whilst they're a different combat zone per se there's still a degree of connection that can be formed in dealing with hardships and isolation and not being understood and all the things that come with those tense times so you can create a network there where you're actually working with the mental health of everyone involved because they're creating a an ability to open networks where they can start to communicate and feel that they can be valued and actually have somebody to talk to and not be judged for how they're feeling or whatever it might be. Do you think they are judged too much? There would definitely be a portion of it. I think there's that judgment probably comes more so from a lack of understanding, again, from the general society, because they don't, just because somebody might be quiet, it's no different than the quiet kid at a, a social scene. You know, you've got the popular kids, you've got the quiet one, you've got all those dynamics, but for the guys that have returned from the services, it's probably an amplified experience for them. So the ability for them to actually be valued in the sense of 
you've got all this judgment within society that we see every day that the media enforces judgment, uh, the amount of discrimination and stuff that goes on. You've got every single media outlet has its own agenda that it's trying to push. And then you've got people that just jump on the bandwagon with no understanding of anything other than they want to be popular or they want to be part of the crowd because they've got their own insecurities or whatever it might be. So you have all of those that then look at somebody that sits on the outskirts and that person is trained in being observant. That person is trained to pick up on things to see if there's some sort of threat. So they're going to be amplified in their awareness of what people are saying or doing and, and things like that. That So it never really goes away, that, that perceived that threat, that um, hostile environment. They're creating it. Well, it hasn't for me. Um, and I've, I got out in 08 and I still, I still look at situations based on a threat evaluation. So... Even though you're a mechanic, it's kind of surprising that, you know, you yeah. did do a degree of soldiering, but primarily you're a mechanic. Well, yes and no, because they actually, they, they still enforce that you're a soldier first. Okay. So your trade is actually secondary. Um, you still have to do quite a lot of, like, throughout the week, you would have a series of military-based training regimes that you'd be doing. So... You're doing your uh, PT, your physical training every day or a couple of days. You're doing some sort of military operation, whether it's a pack march, whether it's um, you know a dry fire, whether it's going down to the the wets, which is your um, uh, simulated firing range, rifle range, uh, or you're doing an actual range shoot, or you know there's, there's always something going on, or they'll have a deploy a an exercise that is always part of it and that's actually why they employ civilian contractors to do a lot of those other jobs because I ended up going back to Inogra, um a few years ago as a contractor um, because the guys get so caught up doing the military side of things you got to have some sort of consistency in the workshop to have production rolling through. Was that handy that you had that military experience? That was the only thing that got me the job so and this is where it's really interesting how things come full circle because whilst I, in a lot of ways, when I got out, I resented the time that I did in. As I got older, I sort of started to view it differently. And then I started to actually be proud of the time that I did in. And then all the experiences with the work and the skills, so the military and then the hydraulics and then the heavy earth moving and the different things that came from it, all led to me getting a job at, to CER doing work with their engineering unit and funnily enough I walked into the workshop there and ran into four guys that I went through training with 12 years prior. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Small world but it's not. It is and that made it uh, really good for for me because I was in a a pretty bad spot um, financially, emotionally, I'd had business, two businesses fail, um, relationship fail quite a lot of other stuff that was going on, which is why I was in Brisbane, because I just needed to get myself back on my feet. So that that experience was crucial to, to getting that job. 
and then to be able to understand how the military system works, to understand how their parts system works and, and all the things with it, they look for ex-service personnel to go back into that. Was it better though with that job, the fact that you weren't constrained for using all of your experience that oh, you were re, that you were when you were at uh, basic training and from then on? Definitely. It was a much better environment for me anyway, going in as a contractor than as it was to be in the forces. So the you did have certain freedoms and I suppose had I finished my trade in the forces as well, I still would have had certain freedoms as far as that's the job, go do it, get it done kind of thing. Um, so I didn't get to experience that side of it from a military point of view because I still was in my training side of things when I got out. But because I had done the hose experience and I'd done the, um, the specialising in hydraulics, they actually were looking to me for experience in those fields. So I actually assisted with um, training the apprentices that they were rolling through um, to give them experience on those particular things and give them that little bit extra that they wouldn't get from their day-to-day routines. At this stage, do you wish you'd stayed in? No. (laughs) No, honestly, I still have moments where, again, while I can't say for sure, because obviously I didn't experience it, I still have times where I look back on it and go, honestly, if I had stayed in, once I got my fitness up, I actually probably would have preferred to focus more on going into the special forces and going into more like a sniper's role because of my proficiency with shooting. So I I think that through all the processes that I had, it allowed me to go through a very steep yet very powerful learning curve for my own self-development. And had I stayed in, I wouldn't have gone through that growth for myself um, or not at the pace at which I went through it. This program that you're talking about that is going to help repatriate repatriate soldiers, how's it getting off the ground and how you're uh, going about it? Are you getting funding? Are you getting support? Getting support at the moment. So in the sense of uh, some property owners and some veterans who I've put the the word out to, and we're actually looking at... um, getting it set up as a registered not-for-profit association and once we've got that foundation we've kind of just been developing the the core members within the administrative side of things because obviously it's all good and well to have the the guys out doing the the actual work on the properties and the shooting and all this but you obviously need to run the background stuff as well so i've really been focusing on trying to get that core group Um, established first and we're looking at uh, taking over an existing organization that's looking to kind of either wind down or change its direction a little bit Um, so we're still in discussions as to which way is the best way to go there but once we've got that not-for-profit and the charity status set then we're going to be starting to push a lot more with what we can do for funding and things like that so At the moment, it's been early stages. I've kind of just put it out through different Facebook groups for um, 
different farming orientated Facebook groups and a couple of veteran orientated groups as expressions of interest in the concept. And then based on the guys that have responded on that, been able to then go, okay, well, we've had a couple get togethers, we've discussed the, the core direction and just finalizing the admin stuff to then be able to go more formally with it. What's the reaction been from the farmers? Very positive. The the biggest um, biggest restriction we've had so far is simply logistics, especially with all the COVID stuff. It's made it a lot harder to get out onto certain areas. At least you're not doing it in Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Victorians. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I don't think I want to go down there anyway. I don't like the cold. <laughs> um, but they have a massive dog problem down there. They have an absolutely massive feral dog problem down in Victoria and New South Wales. So we will be getting down there when when the opportunity arises. But the the biggest thing has just been organising logistics. We've got quite a few property owners that are more than willing for us to come out and, and do what we want to do and, and be involved with it. We just haven't had a chance to get there yet. So the we've got a couple of local areas uh, and there's actually a a veterans retreat in Gympie at Mother Mountain and happens to be adjacent to one of the properties that I used to do a fair bit of work for. And so we've been going out there helping with um, some feral animal control there and some property tasks because what Kylie's doing out there with veterans retreat is absolutely phenomenal. Um, What's happening? So she's set the program up as a, it's a 40 acre property, which is a campground for first responders and veterans and still serving personnel. And their families can come out, camp for free. And she's developing it for a lot of animal therapy to go with it and other, basically opening it up for virtually any sort of therapy to be able to run on the property. So she's got sheep out there and horses. So trying to get off the ground with equine therapy and that sort of stuff and just providing a area for people to be able to come, get away, chill out for however long they need, whether they're you know, wanting to do whatever it is on the farm, like there's always different things <laughs> on the property. So she's really pushing to grow that, um, that organisation. It's registered for um, the tax benefits so any companies or businesses that want to contribute to it can get the, the tax offsets and have you got much interest so far sorry for giving some help some financial help or support of there has been expressions of interest um again i haven't sort of pushed that too hard at the moment because i want to get the foundation right before i start getting top heavy um i learned that through businesses that didn't go so well <laughs> uh so the and also I've, for me personally i'm having to spread my time i've got a young family and my son's two years old so particularly in these first development years for him i'm wanting to make sure that i'm there and really giving him the foundations that he needs from a having a dad that's actually there and the emotional development and all the things that go with that that a lot of kids miss out on and that probably comes from my own experiences with growing up where dad was there working, but not necessarily there emotionally. And that was a really difficult thing for me. So I think that's become a, a subconscious driver for me to be so focused on 
the emotional understanding that comes with whatever the situation is, whether it's dealing with your kids, whether it's dealing with stress, whether it's whatever the environment is. I think if you're dealing with kids, you are dealing with stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't actually find it that stressful, to be honest. Um, I think the one of the things that's helped me a lot is actually doing Toastmasters, funnily enough, which is public speaking. Because what I've learned is that kids communicate entirely through body language because they don't know anything else. Really? <laughs> I know, it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but if you actually really switched on to those cues, it becomes, I mean, you're not going to get it right all the time, but it actually becomes relatively easy to understand what it is that your child's trying to say. So if you can be focused and engaged and actually present with your child it's not really that stressful like you have the times where okay you know that he's got an upset belly there's not really a lot you can do for it other than just hold him and comfort him and let his body work through it but you know you can start to pick up on it and go okay you, you rub his belly a little bit and you go oh yeah that's tense and that's tight or you know, you feel the temperatures, you got all these things, you can see that the cheeks are inflamed, so teething and all that sort of stuff. They become little things that become just another way of communicating and then the stress levels just drop. How's becoming a father changed you? Well, becoming a father was actually a, a surprise. It wasn't planned. Um, so it actually changed a lot in regards to where I saw myself going. Uh, it, it took a little while to readjust to that reality. Get um, your head around it. Yeah, yeah. And you can ask my partner, and there was definitely times there where my communication was not good. <laughs> but uh, we... As far as I was concerned, it was, I've got this responsibility now, and I need to step up to the plate. And through that process... I kind of was able to do some self-reflection and go, okay, everything I've been doing up to that point was leading me to more of a teaching role anyway because I was starting to do boot camps with kids that were going off the rails, uh, which was working with uh, other veterans as the instructors and working with the apprentices that were coming through in an, at the army barracks there at the time everything was gearing me up into a teaching role and then it took me a little while to kind of click to it and then I realized well hang on a minute being a dad is just the ultimate teaching role because you've got a blank canvas that will absorb everything that you say and do so I became more aware of myself at that point as well and then I started to reflect on my own upbringing and I started to reflect on the different environments that you see or different family dynamics that you see around the place and go, okay, I like that, I don't like that, I like that, I don't like that, and go, okay, well, this is what I see as the best environment moving forward for my family, so that's what I'm going to strive to deliver for him. How has it improved your relationship with your father by becoming a father yourself? Because you say it wasn't great. <laughs> um it's probably actually, I'm not sure whether it's improved it, but it's challenged it because 
dad very stubborn in some respects <laughs> but he's got his reasons for it and as i've gotten older i've been able to appreciate the reasons that he does the things he the way he does them and what i did was basically take the things that i liked about what i had growing up so the understanding of work ethic the understanding of trades the understanding of um working with people and things like that excuse me and then because i've always been quite an emotional emotionally aware person i know that was something that really lacked for me because dad didn't know how to give that emotional support because of his background and so my focus with having my son now has really been on the emotional side of things in these early stages so dad's actually kind of struggled to understand why i do certain things that he wouldn't prioritize so i guess the thing that's grown out of it though is the communication and probably more so just me putting my foot down and going no whilst i respect your views i need you to respect my views does he though he ha- he does and he doesn't always agree <laughs> <laughs> but i think he has been able to see me grow to be my own man and be able to stand by my own decisions and i think that's the thing that was he, he trying to stop you at one stage of doing that though when you were butting heads when you were younger or you know do it my way and that's the way it will be done I'm not sure whether it was intentionally trying to block it. It was probably more so a fact of it's kind of what he knew. So it was just that repeating, you know, teaching what he knew subconsciously. So repeating the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. How hard was it for you to, I know with my father, um, he was very hard. Mm. And the hard thing for me was to not repeat those patterns. Yeah. I still fight them. <laughs> I don't know why I've found it fairly easy to transition. I think mum probably had a fairly big role in that because she's much more on the empathetic side. So they're kind of polar opposites in that side of things. So because dad was there but not there, mum played a fairly significant role for us as kids. So... I probably picked up on that in those early development years and that set the foundation. So then it was more a matter of internal conflict within myself trying to find the balance of, well, you know, I see it done this way, I feel this way about it and trying to find that middle ground. So I struggled a lot with that more so than um, being on that far end of the scale. It was more going, okay, well, I see that, I can understand that, but I don't like that. You were um, talking about how harsh your father was when you were in that sort of early stages of maturing. Mm. How is he these days with your grandson, well, with his grandson? Has it softened him? I think it has. <laughs> uh, I actually see him having a smile every now and then, which is... <laughs> um, I think it's actually been... A really good thing for him like I've got other brothers and siblings and I've got nephews and nieces and he does have other grandkids but because of the the distance the 
some are in Brisbane, some are in Toowoomba, some are further away. They didn't have a, a necessarily direct influence, um, particularly whilst they were so young. So, you know, you might have, see them for the weekend and then, you know, not see them for a few months or whatever it might be. But because I'm virtually living on the same property, it's a, a 24-7 exposure. And because I've stepped up and kind of put my foot down on certain things as to how I want things to be done with my son, he's kind of seen it, fought it, seen it, fought it, and then different things have kind of softened. And also he's um, getting on a bit now as well. And he's not as pushy with the the business side of things and other things like that. So I think he's gone through his own sort of growth and, and development as he's gone, gotten older as well. So I think in a lot of ways, Kip, which is my son, has probably been able to teach him a few things <laughs> um, because he's a very uh, confident little kid. So he's confident, he's curious, he'll go up to, to Opa and kind of almost force him to play with him a little bit. <laughs> um, so you have that influence, you kind of don't have a choice after a while. It's nice that you've got that barrier that, as I say, it steps over the generation. Mm. And it's just interesting to hear it from, you know, how it can soften a hard person. It, it does. And I think also because they're, it's not that direct. It's not your son per se it's not dad talking to me it's there's the there's a separation i think also makes a difference um and you you witness it all the time you see that change in dynamics and it's uh, i find it fascinating to watch (laughs) because for me personal growth is a, a really fascinating thing and um, being a father has been phenomenal for it, so much to the point where I've written a book about it. <laughs> uh, Tell us about the book. So the book is A Bloke's Guide to Motherhood. <laughs> and basically it was a, it's written as a, just a short book. It's only intended to be a, a humorous take with still touching on certain key points. And I wrote it based on the fact that you know, becoming a father was a new thing for me. The You see so many uh, split families. You see, you, know, you hear so many stories of single parents where the father's done a runner because, you know, this kid's come along unexpectedly or, you know, whatever the circumstances might be. And then I kind of started looking into it a bit more and trying to find information on, okay, how do I actually do this whole dad thing? And the few books that I did find were all written by doctors with PhDs and zero actual life experience that I couldn't relate to. I couldn't sit there and read the information they were saying because it just bored the hell out of me. Um, so I kind of just went, well, screw it. I'm just going to write my own thing based on my own experiences. So I wrote this when, you know, in the first, shit, it only took me like two weeks to write. <laughs> uh, and it was when Kip was still quite young, but it was just focusing primarily on the pregnancy phase, what you can do as a person. So how to 
just do those little things to help out. Like obviously, she's going through, the mother's going through a hell of a lot with the physical changes, the pains, the stresses and everything that goes with it. It's not really that difficult to clean the kitchen every now and then. It's not really that difficult to make dinner every now and then. It's not really that difficult to actually just step up to the plate and be a decent human being. It's just common sense stuff that, you know, whether you end up being in a relationship with that person, whether you, you know, discuss it and go, look, we've, we've run two different paths, but we've got to do the right thing for our kid. It's, it's about just being a decent person and going, okay, well, if you're open and honest with your communication, you can work through these things. So, you know, you can make dinner. It's not like she's going to expect it every single day after it. It's just doing something nice because you see she's in pain. Um, changing nappies, it's not that difficult. So it's just kind of getting that wake-up call to go, okay, well, just step up to the plate. So whilst I've gone with the humorous touch, I've kind of given a few different categories of people. So you've got the bloke, you've got the bloquette, you've got the um, the feminist, you've got the activist. So I kind of gave a little bit of a, a rundown on the different type of people that might end up reading the book and said, if you're this kind of person, I expect this kind of reaction and whatever else. But at the end of the day, you got to make the choice as to how you're going to be as a father. What's the reaction been to the book? Uh, to be honest, I haven't had a chance to really push it as much as I'd like. Uh, I kind of wrote it and then just got busy with other things. So I, I've self-published it on, on Lulu, which is an online self-publishing website. Um, so I've got it up there, but I haven't really actively pushed it. I've sold it probably a dozen copies just through different family friends or um, connections through a Facebook group that I'm in. But the general consensus from those that I kind of shared it with is they've enjoyed the lighthearted approach to it, the direct, um, whilst I talk a lot of crap, it's still very straightforward. It's no, not fluffing it up. And then... You were 16 when you first got your pilot's license. Yes. Why did you have the interest in aviation when you had a more heavy machinery background? Um, my oldest brother was in the Air Force. And I think... Dad had always had an interest in aviation as well, so there was kind of a an underlying thing there for it. So I had the opportunity to uh, get into gliding uh, initially. Uh, Dad knew one of the instructors at the Gimby Gliding Club there because we used to do some work on their machinery and whatnot. So it was, I think it was just kind of a, a weekend, let's go out to the airport and... Um, have a go on a glider basically was where it kind of started uh but yeah i did have an interest in the air force and in fighter planes and all that sort of stuff as a kid but it was never a, a super dying passion that i couldn't recall but by the same token i never really had any specific really burning passions that i can relate to it was kind of i dabbled in this and dabbled in that um so once I got into the pl- into the glider and had my first go around, that kind of got me hooked on it. And then it's very addictive. It is. It's a very freeing experience, and a very calming experience too. So when we were out at the airport, I 
uh, was not far off going solo in my gliding side of things and then met uh, Brett from Pro Sky Aviation who happens to be ex-Air Force and that got me into the powered side of things so I started flying at 15 and yeah was helping out around the uh, around the hangar basically every weekend I'd be out at the airport hangar at <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> so that was a, a really good experience because Brett became almost like an adopted father for me because he was able to articulate a little emotional things that I wasn't able to get from dad so um, that was a, a really really crucial part of my development actually uh, through my teenage years was spending that time out at the airport because it got me away from the influences of your partying and your drinking and all the stuff that normally goes on at that age. Um, not that we ever drank. <laughs> um, I didn't actually start drinking until I got out of the army, but uh, it kind of got me something more, there's just more to it. It was being able to help out with the maintenance side of things, being able to learn more about the ins and outs of the, the mechanical side of the plane understanding the the way the wings work and everything like that. I found all the physics of it really, really interesting. And then, you know, we'd just have, through the course of the day, there'd be different conversations that would come up regarding relationships or families or, you know, things that were crucial to emotional development that Brett was able to articulate and explain in a way that just clicked with me. So. Um, he played a, a very big role in, in my development. So up. with Brett being ex-Air Force, your brother in the Air Force, how did you end up in the Army then? Because that was the ad in the paper. <laughs> um, and recruiting, as I found out later, I think have quotas that they have to... Because I said to them when I went for my interview, it was like, uh, they asked, what would you like to get out of your career and this and that. I'm like, oh, well doing some flying, I'd like to do this and that. Like, oh yeah, cool, no worries. You can, once you're in the army, you can trade transfer, you can core transfer, you can do this, you can do that. And then I'll get down to Wagga and down to Albury and I'll start talking to people about it and they're like, yeah, you can, but you have to do like six years here first and then you have to meet all your obligations to this and then we might let you transfer to this. So by the time you actually get where you want to be, it's probably about 15 years. I'm like, right, I don't like that. To wrap things up, this program that you're looking at to get ex-veterans or veterans, ex-soldiers, ex-military personnel into mainstream society and coping better, what do they need to do? How are you actually going to take it to the next step? At the moment, it's just getting in touch, whether it's through Facebook or whatever. Um, so we're going to be getting a proper Facebook page set up. Um, We've got a page called The Farmer's Army, uh, but I have to check. I only just recently saw that you there's a The Farm Army or something, which is another organisation, so I have to make sure it doesn't have any conflicting legalities associated with it. But at the moment, yeah, The Farmer's Army on Facebook is a page I've set up for it to get a general interest and, and things starting to roll, so it's just a matter of sending a message through that or expression of interest. And then from there, as we develop further with things uh, it'll just be updated as we go um, so that's quite literally where we're at <laughs> can you see yourself doing this full-time uh, down the track yes um, 
as I developed the balance between my commitments with the family side of things and because I want it to be family orientated as well so there's going to be opportunities for camping trips that encompass all the families so it's not just about the veterans it's about their families being involved because that's obviously a crucial part of it because the partners need to understand what the what people are going through as well so um, the whole thing is about that mental support and the family and the connections so my commitment to the program is directly a reflection of my commitment to my family as to showing people that you need to have balance. Are partners the ones that really have to bear the brunt of a lot of this stress and uh, not necessarily fitting in the way the army would hope? Yes. Uh, And I think one of the... There's a, a lot of pressure on partners for for dealing with um, returned servicemen or service personnel because when you look at what these guys go through overseas or whatever, the home environment is entirely about emotional understanding, whereas a soldier still has emotional understanding but we're taught to respond to emotionally to emotions differently. So we we don't not have emotion we're just taught not to respond to our emotions because if you respond to your emotions in a critical time you can get people killed so for somebody to be able to go to a home environment where you've got uh, a young child crying you've got mum stressed out because the child's crying the child's crying (laughs) they're tired the all that sort of stuff the return service personnel struggles to be able to do what the partner needs at that point in time and then they end up getting stressed and confused and whatever else and it just escalates because there's not enough understanding and communication between them to allow a a flow of information is there more funding required because or are we putting soldiers out on the street that are not prepared for it in the majority of cases? I think there's a big... There is money starting to come to it. There is still a massive shortage, I feel, in the support that's actually getting where it needs to be. And I think the other problem is the support that's coming is from people that, you know, say they the government puts out a program that goes, okay, we need to put... 20 psychs out to deal with you know the the 2000 veterans in this area it's not necessarily getting 20 psychs that understand the veterans properly so you might get somebody that's just come out of university they've had a very sheltered life and they know all the theory but they haven't got the life experience to be able to relate so nothing against them as a psychologist but for them to then try and counsel a special forces soldier who's been on black operations and you know seen things that most people couldn't comprehend you're not going to get the help that that person needs so it's really about trying to create and this is the focus on trying to create something different i think a lot of these guys don't want the traditional sort of help that's out there because it's not doing what they need so to create an opportunity where they can just kind of 
self-regulate in an environment where they can feel comfortable is probably the best thing that a lot of them can have. So to be able to get them out onto a property, and the reality is, is most people have uh, this thing where guns are bad and guns are dangerous and all this and that, but at the end of the day, for a soldier, a rifle is no different than a spanner is for a mechanic. It's the tool for their trade. So if you take that away from them and say, no, you can't have that, you're actually taking away their purpose and what they have a connection to. So for them not to be able to have access to something like that is actually counterproductive to their mental health. So whilst it's a fine line to walk, I think it's something that these more alternative approaches need to be given a lot more freedom to actually run their course and see what happens. Because it's, you know, if we could get funding through a a psych student doing their PhD where they can actually get university funding to do a a two-year synopsis on how this goes and actually do their thesis on it, you know, something like that would be phenomenal to see what results would actually come from it. Because for me, it's all ideas and theories based on my own experiences, which is all I can base it on. But if we can get third-party influences that can actually back it up and see the changes outside of what I just see based on my own perceptions, it's it's got to be a win. Um, so and I think you're onto a winner. It's sort of it's a great concept, the farmer's army. So look for it on Facebook. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Wayne Smith, thanks for joining us for Over the Bonnet. No worries. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrymark Medical. Contact Merrymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery or craft foam or even loose filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. And they'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats and they've also got anti-fatigue matting and they have industrial mats and rubber. And if they don't have it, Andrew will get it for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. Their PosiTrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-tonne, an 8-tonne, and a a 2.5-tonne. Plus, they provide side truck hire and have a roller and even a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 22 8806 and I guarantee the earth will move for you.